We're in Hebrews chapter 2 today. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 5 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. I want to start by just offering a quick word. I guess, um, I guess sort of a confession, if you will. Um, as I, uh, a few weeks ago, was kind of looking over Hebrews and, and trying to divide up how the texts were going to be preached over the next couple months, um, that, is a, that is a tough task in general. Uh, but I think with the book of Hebrews, it has been particularly tough in that uh, many times it's not until I really dive into uh, the study of various texts that I see, man, everything that is in there and just um, how long a sermon might have to be in order to cover a whole section of, of some of these passages in Hebrews. And so, uh, you know, what we have before us today, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, when I at first kind of reading and, and trying to understand the text from a, a broad overview, thought this seems like a good place to divide the text. Other commentators have divided it up in this way and, and established various sections. Um, but as I really began to dive into my study this week, I was struck by just how much there is in, in this passage. And so um, my hope today is that you will receive one coherent, understandable message from the Word of God. Uh, but uh, I noticed even in my preparation, in my study, that it seemed like uh, a very tough task in light of all that is in this text, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. And so I, I, I offer that to you, I guess, in hopes that um, maybe if I fail to present to you one coherent sermon, that you will uh, hopefully glean something from this anyway, because indeed it's, is, this is a very rich text, and, uh, and I hope that we can do it justice here today in spite of the fact that uh, I am a sinful man, and you are sinful people, and we are uh, struggling against that, but praise be to God, he has given us a means by which we can overcome that, and that's the Holy Spirit, that despite our sinfulness, despite our, our brokenness and our understanding, um, he has granted us the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's my prayer today as we study and read Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to open us up just with a word of prayer real quick off the top. Lord God, you have heard my, um, Lord, my confession here today as to the, uh, the challenges I have had in, in studying this text, and Lord, you know them, and you know this text, for indeed you are the author of this text, and so Lord, we ask today for your help as we study, as we read, and as I uh, attempt to faithfully expound upon your word in Hebrews chapter 2. I ask for your grace, both for me and for the hearers, that together we would see the goodness of God, see more of your character, more of your beauty, and worship you greater in light of that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For those of you who have pets, um, particularly I would say for those of us who have uh, dogs and cats, you understand how easy it is to get attached to your pets. And now, I'm not trying to argue that, that pets are humans or that they are kids. They're not, uh, okay? They are uh, of a different uh, created order than human beings. They are a part of God's creation that he declared we are to have dominion over. They are made not in the image of God, and, uh, and so there's an understanding of that. And yet, everyone who, who has pets, and, and for me personally, as someone who is, um, I've had a dog most of my life. Growing up, we had 
uh, a couple different dogs, and then um, early on in marriage, we had a dog, and you all know how attached you can get to, to your pets, and, and particularly uh, people with, with dogs and cats. Um, not to exclude you reptile people, you are just of a different breed entirely, um, so particularly people like me who enjoy things that you can pet, uh, and it feels good. Um, we all know the attachment that you gain, uh, that you can gain from, from a dog or from a cat, and they can very much, they become a part of your family, a, a unique part, they have a specific role, but they be- become a part of your family. And that, that means whenever you have a dog or a cat that dies, the pain is very real. You feel the weight, you feel sorrow at the loss of a pet. Uh, me and my wife just lost our dog last year, and we felt the weight of that. It hurt. This dog has been a part of our lives for so long, was a part of our family, lived in our house, um, ate from underneath our table, slept on our couch. I mean, just the, you develop a bond with these kind of animals, and they provide a, a great amount of comfort and joy because God created them for this purpose, for, to bring us joy, to, to serve our needs, to, uh, to service us. And because of this, whenever you have a, a dog or a cat or something of that kind that gets sick, there are many people who would say, man, if I could do something to help my dog, I would. Even to the point that if I could, if, say, for example, you had a dog that was suffering from kidney failure. For those of us who, who really, we love our dogs, we, we cherish that, that bond that we have between us and this animal, you might even say, if I could donate a kidney to this dog, I would. But the reality is, you can't. Why would that not work? Why is that not okay? Why would it not function? Because you're not a dog. Your kidney could do nothing for that dog to help it, to, uh, to cure its kidney failure, to provide an adequate substitute. There's nothing that you could do to provide for that dog, whether it be a blood transfusion, whether it be an organ transplant. Nothing you could do could help or save that dog. Why? Because you are not a dog. In order to be able to help your pet, your dog, your cat, uh, donate an organ, donate blood to help that animal, you would have to become that animal. And we all know that for us as human beings, that is impossible. We are left without being able to help these animals, even that we love so dearly. The point of our text today, as we will see in Hebrews chapter 2, is that this is very much the situation in which the Lord God entered into. That he saw humanity and he saw our need, our deepest need. In fact, uh, a need so great that apart from fulfillment of this need, all that we have is certain destruction, certain wrath, certain death. And the Lord God, being of a different kind, was not able in the spirit, as a spirit, to do anything. Therefore, it was necessity that God become a man, do what no other being could ever do what no one has ever done, what uh, no other force is powerful enough to do, the Lord God was able to intervene into the situation to provide for us an appropriate substitute to cure our need, and he was able to do so by becoming man. And so that's what we're going to see today in our text in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. We're going to see the way in which Christ entered into this world, taking on flesh, in order to to provide for us our greatest need. And so let's read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. 
For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a while, little while, lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. As present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom, by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, who are sanctified, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power, the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to make them make, he had to be made like his brother in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray one more time. Lord God, this is your word before us. We ask that, Lord, that you would help us to understand it truly and rightly. That you would be faithful to provide for us understanding as we read and understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So thus far in the book of Hebrews, we've seen the author of Hebrews. Again, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but we've seen him engaging in chapter one, largely in this discussion on Christ's supremacy, specifically his supremacy over the angels. That angels are great, powerful, amazing beings, and yet Christ is supreme over them. Then at the beginning of chapter two that we looked at last week, we see the author of Hebrews, taking time after expounding upon the greatness of Christ and, and, and his glory and his supremacy, he takes a moment to, moment to say, hey, let's, let's take a break and let's just consider in light of that our great salvation. Let us consider in light of that the goodness and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now we come to our text today where the writer jumps back into his argument, back into teaching on the supremacy and the greatness of Christ Jesus. And in the portion of Hebrews before us today, the writer of this amazing letter begins at this point to lean heavily into the incarnation of Christ, leaning heavily into the fact that Jesus Christ took on flesh, that he became a man, not just looking like a man, not just acting like a man, but he became a man and took on every aspect of humanity, every aspect of what it means to be, be a human. And the author emphasizes the way in which Christ, the God-man, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament 
and the covenants that God has made with his people. And he does this uh, by emphasizing three things and, and pointing out three ways, and I'm going to lay those points out for you, that first of all, point number one, Christ became the better Adam. We see this in verses five through nine. As the author jumps back into his argument after this aside of verses one through four, he jumps back into his argument of the supremacy, the greatness of Christ, of our Redeemer, that he is the fulfillment of the old covenant, that he is the mediator of the new and the better covenant. And it seems that the the author is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. That's largely the understanding of the letter to the Hebrews, that he is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And it's, it's possible, in fact, because of a lot of what the author says in the book, it seems likely that he's, that he's writing to former Jews who were struggling to let go of their Judaism. They were struggling to let go of the tradition that they had known, that they had grown up in, of the way in which they understood their scriptures, of the way in which tradition was formed and and the temple system was laid out and the sacrificial system was understood. This was their life. This is what they had known. And, And now the author of Hebrews is coming along encouraging them, you need to let that go. Those things have passed away. Those things are done with. Why? Because something new and better, the fulfillment of those things, the substance of which those things were shadows has come and namely has come in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. We can understand the challenge that this would be for for the Jewish people to let go of their tradition. If you've ever known someone who has has come to faith in Christ and, and walked out of, left a another religious system, then you understand the difficulty or, or you perhaps have seen them struggling with the difficulty of letting go of those former practices because it's, it's a part of who they are. It seems so instrumental to their identity. This is true of, uh, of other countries where when the gospel goes forth, there may be those who hear the gospel, believe it, accept it, but then struggle to let go of, of maybe pagan worship or sacrificial practices or other religious rituals, it's tough. It's tough to let go of those things. And even if you have not been, been pulled out of a background of, of Islam or Buddhism or any other false religion, you still can maybe feel and understand how difficult it is to lay off certain things, things that were a part of who you were, that were a part of your culture, that were a part of the way you were raised, the way you were brought up. But then when you came to faith in Christ and realized Man, those things are, are not it. In fact, those things are, are worthless, perhaps, have, are to be done away with. We can begin to see the difficulty with which it would be to let go of those things. This is the point that which the author writes, and we see this throughout the text when he encourages them, do not turn back from these things. Do not turn back to your old ways. Those things have passed away. Something better has come And here it is, and the author lays out for them the better covenant, the better fulfillment, the fulfillment, the substance of the shadow. Commentators disagree on these few verses here in verses five through eight. There's there's disagreement on exactly who is the subject being discussed. So we see in verses five through eight, let's read that again. The author says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, It has been testified somewhere, 
What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Commentators disagree on on who it is that's being discussed here. There are some that say that this is a discussion on Christ, that this is Christ being discussed here. And I think we can pretty clearly see why someone would come to this conclusion, why many commentators believe this is entirely a discussion on Christ here in in 5 through 8. He is the one uh, that God subjected the world. Uh, we, We hear things like putting everything in subjection under his feet, and we remember passages like in Ephesians where where Paul uses this as an illustration to say everything is put under subjection to Christ, and he does apply this to Christ. We hear the phrase son of man, which the psalmist that's being quoted here uh, lays out, and we think, oh, son of man, well, I've heard that before. That's the, the messianic title applied to Christ, applied to him first in Daniel, but then uh, in the Gospels. And so we can see that many commentators understandably come to the conclusion that this is Christ being discussed in verses 5 through 8. But there are other commentators who disagree and say that actually the subject here in verses 5 through 8 is man. That it is man being discussed here. That it was man, not angels, that God subjected the world to come. That it is man who was made for a little while lower than angels, crowned with glory and honor. Uh, That it was man under whom he put all things in subjection under his feet. This is, the, this is the point that I will be arguing, that I take, that he, this is a discussion on man, that he is saying man is the one that the Lord gave dominion to, that put all things in, this un, in subjection under his feet. Now, this is not to say that when he put all things under subjection under his feet, that he's saying universal, that like planets, cosmos, all authority, everything is under them, but that is to say the created order, everything that God created, he made man He gave man dominion over. I believe this is the correct understanding of this passage, that it's referring to mankind in the first few verses here. And I think that the quotation drawn from Psalm 8, which which is our psalm that's quoted here, I believe this indicates that this is the correct context, that that, uh, man is being discussed here. Why? Because man is the subject of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is actually the psalm that we read for our call to worship. I'm going to read it for us now. Uh, Jacob, if you could put Psalm 8 back up on the screen from our call to worship so you can follow along with me. Let's read this whole psalm and, and see who is being discussed here. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
can we just take a moment and, and just bask in the glory and the truth revealed in this psalm? He says, and I think we can all echo along with him, when I look at your heavens, the work of your finger, fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, when I consider all that you have done, your glory, your goodness, I look at the sun and the moon and the stars and they are simply just something you do, that you just put them in place without hesitation, without effort. When I consider your glory, the conclusion that the psalmist comes to is, God, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why on earth, Lord, do you concern yourself with lowly men, human beings? We are nothing compared to God. We begin to see the glory of this text as he contemplates the greatness of God and the smallness of man and saying, God, what is man that you were mindful of him? But not only that you were mindful of him, but that you made him lower than angels and crown him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea. That not only does God take account of us and, and take notice of us, but he has bestowed upon us glory and honor as his crowning creation. This is an amazing, amazing reality that ought to bring us to worship when we consider that the Lord not only doesn't squash us like bugs, but actually takes an interest in us, cares about us. God ought to view us the way we view ants. You know, like this time of year, many of you maybe have seen ants crawling around your house or, or around outside, or if you leave food out, you'll come back to find that food covered with ants. And, and what's our reaction? We go, ah, yeah. We stomp them all out, right? Or we get the spray and we spray them. Be done with them. Be rid of them. To us, ants are at best an afterthought. They're nothing. We don't consider them. At worst, they're a nuisance to us. To be stomped out, to be eradicated. They're nasty. They're tiny. They're nothing. And no one has given a thought to stomping on an ant. Right? This is the way God ought to view us. Truly and rightly. Because indeed, compared to Him, we are nothing we ought not even be an afterthought. Or, because of our rebellion against him, we ought to be snuffed out like ants. It would be right for him to get out the spray and destroy us for what we have done as we have rebelled against him, and yet he doesn't. It would be like if we looked at an ant and said, oh my goodness, this ant is amazing. We take it up and we say, here, let me take you to the table where you can eat and Enjoy this food. And oh, yes. You have friends? Let's bring those friends too. And oh, man, look at these amazing, amazing ants and, and begin to collect them and love them and care for them and give them a, a, a place to sleep, a spot at your table, a place in your family. That's silly, right? We, yeah, it is. And yet, is that not what God has done for us? Are we not better than, no better than ants in his eyes? And yet what we see is that he cares for us. He's taken notice of us. He has intervened for us and he has adopted us into his family. He has given us, granted us a spot at his table. This ought to cause us to worship right here alone. 
This gets, I think, too, at the inadequacy of the answers that we give to certain questions about God towards us. Because the question really is, Lord, what is man that you are mindful of? Why do you care about man? Not only why do you care, why on earth do you care and love us so much that you entered into the mess, that you took on flesh, that you took on uh, the, the reality of man and died on a cross so that we could be forgiven? Is there an adequate answer to that question? Not really. The only, qu- the only answer that we really have is for his glory because of his great love, because of his compassion. But when we think about our compassion, when we think about what we would do if we were in that situation, we begin to see that even his compassion is so far beyond our comprehension. Even his love and his grace, qualities that we understand and that we cling to, even those we do not understand fully and are so far above us. But back to the point being made by the writer of Hebrews. The point he's making here is that man is the one to whom God subjected all things, the one to whom he gave dominion. But then at the end of verse 8, we realize that something has gone wrong, as the text tells us. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That God created man, gave him dominion over all things, as the psalmist says, put all creation in subjection underneath him. And yet, what do we see right now? That all things are not in subjection to him. That there is a certain amount of chaos, that there is a lack of a, of a true exercising of dominion in the world. Why is this? It's because of the fall. Because of what happened in the garden in Genesis 3 when, when Adam sinned and sin entered the world and corrupted all things so that our relationships are corrupted, our attitudes are corrupted, and our ability to fulfill God's command and exercise dominion is corrupted. And we see now that we do not exercise dominion correctly, that we do not have all things in subjection under us of God's created order. And this is because of the fall. But this really begins to bring out the beauty of verse 9 as we read. There's this word, but... But we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We begin to see the beauty of verse 9 when we recognize that man was given this task. Man was given dominion over all things. And what happened? Man failed. Man sinned, corruption entered the world, and dominion is not correctly exercised. Authority, subjection is not correctly seen. But in Christ Jesus, what do we see? We see a restoration of that order. This verse tells us that Jesus literally took on flesh and became man in order to taste or partake of the absolute worst thing that humanity has to offer, that being death. And this verse tells us that it was by the grace of God that he did this. Can you imagine? Can you imagine looking at a culture and seeing the worst thing about that culture and saying, I'm going to engage in this culture specifically so that I can do that thing? That's what the Lord God did for us. He looked at us, saw our need, and he intervened. Indeed, intervened, took on flesh in order to participate in, to partake in 
the worst thing that humanity has to offer. This is where we begin to see things being made right. The solution to the problem is the new and better Adam, Jesus Christ. Where we as human beings, where the first Adam failed and dominion was corrupted, the correct exercise of subjecting all things was messed up and lost. Christ entered into the equation, took on flesh, so that he could reclaim and recapture correct subjection, having all things put now in subjection under his feet as Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Messiah. Notice that Psalm 8, which is quoted here earlier, says that man was crowned with glory and honor. But as we know, this glory, this honor was distorted. It was distorted by sin as a product of the fall. But Jesus, having also been made for a little while lower than angel, angels, is also crowned with glory and honor. But it's, the text says, because of his death. This glory and honor that Christ has bestowed on him is substantively different than the glory and honor that we had bestowed upon us. For ours is one that was granted to us in light of how we were created, that we were created by God as being image bearers of him, that we reflect the glory of God in his honor as his crowning glory and creation. Christ's glory and honor that's being discussed in our text here is one that he received because of what he did, because of what he accomplished. It was the product of our failing that became the instrument by which Christ was crowned with greater glory and honor. It was through his suffering, through his death, that glory and honor was bestowed upon him. This is the case because it is through death that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, accomplished his plan of salvation, and brought the utmost glory to his name. By accomplishing this task, Christ brought more glory to God than any human being could ever dream of bringing to God, and therefore he has received a greater glory and honor than any human being ever or has ever received. Point number two, Jesus became the founder of our salvation. Christ became the founder of our salvation. We see this in verses 10 through 13, where the text says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. We see the theme continued here that Christ, through his suffering, was made perfect. Now, this does not mean that before Christ suffered that he was sinful or that he was imperfect in some way. That is not being communicated here. It was not that God was living as a, as a sub-level, that he was not truly divine, that he, was, that he was somehow sinful and had to be cleansed of those sins. Christ was fully God while always being fully man. There was never a deviation between the two. Therefore, we know that he was perfect in all things. But the idea, the point being made here is that Christ's perfection was seen in his perfect obedience to the will of God, for this was the will of God that this should happen. There is no mistaking that. Over and over again throughout Scripture, we see that it was God's will that Christ should come and suffer and die on the cross to accomplish redemption. Therefore, for Christ to do anything other than suffer and die on the cross, the perfect plan of redemption would not have been accomplished. His obedience would not have been perfect. 
So what we see is we see his perfect obedience being manifested by his death on the cross for us. That through suffering, he perfectly obeyed and perfectly executed the will of God. And to what end? To bring many sons to glory. To redeem us, to redeem a people for himself. Those who are called by God and given new life are granted the joy of sharing in Christ's glory. That we not only receive a renewed glory as we have uh, have corrupted the glory that God had granted us initially in our creation, but we receive glory along with Christ. We share in His glory and His honor because He has accomplished what we could not. And He has accomplished it on our behalf. This is why the author uses the kind of language that he does here, indicating that Jesus is the founder of our salvation, that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He has taken on flesh to blaze the trail, to lay the path, to make the way of our salvation possible. In this way, he is the founder of our faith. He is able to do it. And he is able now to call us brothers. Now, I would offer a word of caution here, and I think this is something that, that many have fallen into, that we see this text that says he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And it's very easy for us at this point to become laissez-faire towards Christ and view him as not rightly, not in light of his greatness and his glory, but become a little bit too chummy with Christ, that he's my pal, Jesus is my homie, Jesus is, is my, my best bud. It's true that he calls us brother, but not in the sense that we are equals, but in the sense that he has accomplished for us our redemption, that he took on flesh as of the same source of us, meaning that he is human like us so that he could pave the way of salvation so that he could be the founder of our salvation. So I would caution you never to read this text and think Jesus is our, our buddy, our pal. I think that's a dangerous way to talk of Christ. There's a, a really weird uh, music video that came out back in like the late 80s, early 90s, back when, man, Christianity was weird back then, wasn't it? There were all kinds of weird videos and songs coming out. And it's this song called Jesus Is My Friend. And man, I'm just going to leave it up to you to look it up. But it, it, was, it was exactly what you would expect from a bad theology worship band back in the early 1990s. Um, but the idea being that Jesus is just a little, little buddy of ours, that we hang out, that, that we go out and, uh, and party together, that we drink together, that, that is a bad approach to Christ, I would argue. And it's not one that we ever see mimicked in Scripture. The writers of Scripture, the apostles, Christians, the early church, they never would have dared to speak of Christ in this way. Because Christ is, while accomplishing our salvation, while becoming man, is still far greater than us. What does Hebrews chapter 1 indicate we should talk about Christ? As our chum, as our homeboy? No. It indicates that we should talk about Christ as supreme, as the authority, as the one who accomplished our salvation. Point number three. Christ became our high priest. We see in the concluding verses here, 14 through 18, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. 
that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 14 here starts by saying that since the ones whom he has freed, the ones whom he has redeemed are flesh and blood, he had to take on flesh and blood in order to rescue them. That he took on flesh and blood in order to rescue from death those who were under slavery of death. For indeed, those who are separated from Christ, the fear of death is a form of slavery. But for those of us who are in Christ, what do we say? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? That is a part of the freedom that we have in Christ, that we no longer have to fear death, that we no longer have to live in that slavery, but we have been freed from that fear. We have victory over death. Why? How do we know this? Because Christ gave us the victory over death, demonstrated it for us, guaranteed it in his resurrection. Jesus became a man so that he could be able to prove, excuse me, provide what was needed. He took on humanity so that he could fill the gap between us and God and serve as our mediator. In particular, because he is a man, he is able to be our high priest. This is indicated in verse 17 where the text says, he had to be made like his brothers. Verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This points us to the necessity of the incarnation. If anyone ever asks, was it necessary that Christ become man? Was there another way God could have done this? The author of Hebrews would indicate for us Nope. There was only one way that the redemption of mankind could be accomplished, and that was for Christ to become a man. That he had to do this. That had it not been for the incarnation, Christ coming, taking on flesh, there would be no redemption. There would be no salvation. There was no other way. And you might be inclined to hear, to read this verse and think that think that God was somehow constrained by something outside of him, that there was a force outside of God constraining him, forcing him to do something, but that is not the case. For indeed, the Lord God is constrained by nothing outside of himself. There is no force greater than him that he has held to an account to. We sometimes think that we are that force, I think, when we say, well, God would never do this, or the God I know and the God I worship would never have done that but the fact of the matter is that the lord is constrained by nobody outside himself but always acts in accordance with his own character this is the constraint his own character his own goodness it was his compassion that constrained him to do this thing for indeed compassion is one of the most amazing attributes of god it is one by whom we see his character It was his compassion that compelled him and motivated him to act. And it was his justice that required that Christ become man. What is the role of the high priest? What is the the Jewish understanding of the high priest? The high priest, according to Jewish understanding, is the one who would enter into the Holy of Holies every year and offer sacrifices for the people's sin. But if you remember from last week, that the sin of those sacrifices, or excuse me, the blood of those sacrifices, how much sin did it actually cleanse? 
How much sin, how much guilt was actually removed by the blood of bulls and goats? What's the answer? None. Goose egg. Zero. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that by the blood of bulls and goats, no sin was ever cleansed. That is why the priests had to offer these sacrifices regularly. That they were never done making sacrifices, right? Every single year they had to go and make another sacrifice. Enter into the holy of holies and make sacrifice in the presence of God as a demonstration of what was required because of sin. But what does the first four verses of Hebrews tell us about Christ? That after making purifications for sin, what did he do? He sat down. Why? Because there was no more sacrifices that needed to be made. The final propitiation had been made. He did what no other high priest had ever done. He made one sacrifice and one was enough. And it was the sacrifice of himself. Jesus' sacrifice was different from that of the other high priest because he sacrificed himself. Not only did he sacrifice himself, but the sacrifice of himself was enough to satisfy God's wrath and buy for us forgiveness of sins, pardon. This gets us to the word that we see here in our text here, a very, very important word in our understanding of redemption, the word propitiation. That he is the faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There are many uh, who dislike the use of this word propitiation. Many liberal scholars and theologians who say this word propitiation is not the best word we should be using, that we should use other words to indicate maybe uh, a, a removal of sin, canceling the record of debt, but not one propitiation. Why? Because the idea of propitiation indicates that there is wrath, that there is punishment that is due, and that there is punishment that is handed down. There are liberal theologians who would argue that a better word to use here would be expiation instead of propitiation. The idea of expiation, that, that sins are washed away and the, the debt of sin is canceled. This closely relating to the forgiveness of sin, but the problem with expiation is that simply the sins are removed, but never is their understanding of what happens to those sins. There is no change on God's part. He still has his wrath. It has never been appeased. Expiation, the idea that sins are taken away, appeases the grace and the love of God, but does not answer the question of how God can forgive sin. In other words, his wrath and his justice go unanswered. But the idea of propitiation, the correct word that is used here in Hebrews chapter 2, is the concept that addresses more accurately what Christ did for us. It refers to Christ taking our punishment for us as our substitute. That it satisfies both God's compassion and his justice. That he not only grants us forgiveness of sin now, removing the cancel, removing the record of debt that stood against us, that he not only does that, but he also appeases his wrath by pouring it out on Christ by putting our sin on him and pouring out the full cup of his wrath on him so that God remains both just and the justifier. That he is both just and merciful. Both his wrath and his compassion remain intact. 
there was a, an instance years ago where there was a, a group of United Church of Christ uh, leaders who were seeking to put together a, a UCC hymnal. One of the songs that they desired to use in their hymnal was a song that we sing here, the song In Christ Alone. And if you're familiar with the song In Christ Alone, you'll know that there's a great line in the song that says, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And these United Church of Christ leaders wanted to use this song, but they didn't like that part of the song. They don't like that they didn't like that uh, God was described as having wrath, that he was described as punishing sin, and certainly that he was described as pouring his wrath out on Christ. And so they, they wanted to change the lyrics. They wanted to change it from, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, to till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. That's expiation. The love of God being demonstrated for us was Christ's death on the cross a display of, of God's love? Certainly. It absolutely was the greatest display of God's love we have ever seen. But it was not merely a display of God's love, but it was also a display of God's wrath, a display of God's justice, that, that sin had to be punished. And ultimately, the, the writers of the song in Christ Alone, it was written by Keith Getty and Stuart Townend, it was presented to them. They had to get permission in order to change the lyrics, and so they came to them, and they said, can we change the lyrics of your song and add it into our, our hymnal? And basically, that was the one line that they said, no, you cannot change, because the theology changes. Penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that Christ is our substitute on the cross, that he died for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we didn't have to die. He took God's wrath on our behalf. That is lost if you remove that line from the song. Simply, God loved us enough that he didn't have to forgive sin. His wrath is completely stricken from the picture. Is that what we see in Scripture? It is not. We see that the wrath of God was satisfied in Christ Jesus. You begin to understand why it is that Christ had to be made man when you understand the doctrine of propitiation. For indeed, in order for man to be forgiven, man had to suffer. The right man, the right sacrifice, and Christ was that right man and that sacrifice. It was not the angels that he came to free. It was the offspring of Abraham. He was able to do this, how? By becoming a man and taking our place on the cross. His mediation as our high priest now provides for us unrestricted access to the presence of God. No other high priest ever dreamed of accomplishing anything of the sort. This is a glorious reality. The doctrine of propitiation matters. It matters for the incarnation. I was thinking as we sang the song earlier, uh, just as I am and, and as Robert declared, and as he said rightly before we sang the song, that, that the Lord accepts us just as we are. But we need to be clear that the Lord accepts us just as we are, but not because of how we are, not because of who we are. The Lord accepts us just as we are in spite of who we are, in spite of how we come. That we don't have to clean ourselves up, make ourselves right before we can come and be accepted before God. Indeed, we could never do that. But he accepts us in spite of who we are 
because Christ has borne our wrath, because propitiation has taken place, and that punishment for sin no longer needs to be made so that God looks at us knowing that we still sin, knowing that we still mess up, but seeing that Christ's righteousness has clothed us, that his wrath has been satisfied. Jesus is our great high priest. As we think about this text and we consider how we can apply this to our lives, I think about the Jews and how they were holding on to their Judaism. And I would encourage you, do not be like the Jews. Whatever it is that you might be holding on to apart from Christ, and there are a plethora, a laundry list of things that people cling to instead of Christ, let go of it. Whatever it is, whether it be your own sin, whether it be your own good works, whether it be a former tradition that you know to be contrary to what we see revealed in Scripture, let go of whatever that is and trust that propitiation has been made for Christ is the better Adam. For Christ is the true founder of our salvation. For Christ is our high priest. Celebrate the greater Adam who has restored humanity to glory and honor. Celebrate the great high priest who has made the greatest sacrifice so that we could enjoy God's presence and rest in him today. Celebrate Christ. Let's pray.